is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with author Dan Millman, good friend of mine, author of The Peaceful Warrior's Way, or The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, if you saw the movie. Today we're talking about his new book, The Four Purposes of Life, learning life's lessons, career and calling being two different things and not necessarily something you should merge into one, and more, actually. We're gonna talk in depth with Dan about learning life's lessons, the earth, your life as the classroom, and more here on this episode of AOC. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with producer Jason. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have some of the questions. And with that, here's Dan Millman. Tell us what you do in one sentence. I write books and I speak where I'm invited around the world, so that's what I do. Well, your modesty is not out of character. However, I will ask you for a little bit of detail on that because you've been doing this for a while, right? This isn't like, I should write a book someday. You've been doing this for quite some time. Actually, how long have you been writing and teaching? My first book came out in 1979, to give you some ideas, well over 30 years. Right, so not to make you feel old, but the majority, or at least a large part of the people listening are like, yeah, my parents told me about that year before I was born, or or some people, Yes, I hear people say, when I was in kindergarten, your book inspired me, so I'm getting older all the time. True, but aging gracefully. That's okay. Look, we've met in person a few times, and I can tell you, I really hope I'm in as good a shape as you are when I am quote-unquote your age, because you can't tell. You know, it's funny, because aging is inevitable, right, of course, but there are ways to do it better than others, and I never really noticed until kind of recently the last few years, I went to visit my parents and I thought, wow, you know, they're getting a little bit older. It's this weird sort of mortality feeling that you get because then you look and you go, am I getting older? Oh my God, I am. Then I went out to dinner with my parents and we met up with some of their friends. And when we got home, I said, wow, Jack and Elaine look really, really old, you know? I guess I just didn't notice. And she said, they're younger than us by a lot. (laughs) Right. Well, I guess people do genetics plus lifestyle. We can trigger genes and the telomeres and all that. So many things account, some in our control, some not in our control in terms of how young we look or feel. It's a winding path, but all we can do is age as gracefully as we can. It brings up a related topic though, uh, Jordan, because when people ask an author, what book are you most excited about? It's inevitably, hopefully, the one they're working on now. And I'm hard at work on the third and final book in my Peaceful Warrior trilogy called The Hidden School, which will be out next year. Maybe we can talk about it then. Yeah. But that book is going to be dealing with something that will be of concern to so many aging people, baby boomers. I'm not alone in this, of course, but I'll express it in my own way, which is really aging and death and life and appreciating life and how precious it is, but from a common sense yet existential viewpoint as well. So I hope to present some really good substance within the context of a great adventure story, another quest. So that's the book I'm working on now, but I'm always asked to talk about my last book, which of course is The Four Purposes of Life. Yes, how is the book going? How's the sales going and the promo going and all that jazz? I don't know, they never let me know anything, but I'm sure it's gotten out there. I've been talking it up for a while, and but this is the most looked forward to interview pretty much that I'm doing, so. Well, good, I hope we got that on tape. 
(laughs) (laughs) I do wonder, has writing kept you young? Because it requires tons of research, tons of work, tons of stretching the brain proverbially, and it seems like that now new research is showing keeps us younger longer. Have you noticed an effect because you continually work? I think I have. I seem to be mentally sharper when I'm working on a book. It must open up some synapses or something of that sort in my brain. So I don't have to do a lot of brain gym or brain games, that sort of thing. Many people do or crossword puzzles. Writing is my mental stimulus. So I would say there's something to that. It reminds me of that great quote by C. Day-Lewis, the father of the actor Daniel Day-Lewis, who said, I write not in order to be understood. I write in order to understand. So I think it does open up ideas in that channel to creativity in doing that process we call writing. It's not just for people who want to get a book published. Most people think of the outcomes. It's just a great process. A friend of mine, Mark Salzman, who wrote a book called Iron and Silk, he's a wonderful writer. He's written about six books, some terrific novels and nonfiction books. And he went to the juvenile prison in Los Angeles and was going to just do one seminar, ended up working for a full year with these at-risk youth, helping them express themselves. And they have writing programs in many prisons, for example, to help people find the words for what they're feeling and thinking, and it can change their lives. Just the process of writing. So journaling can be really wonderful for anybody, whether or not they have aspirations to get published. Jason, you journal. We just talked about this. Yeah, every single morning, a couple pages, longhand. Yeah. Terrific. Yeah, that's so good. It's one of my few regrets that I didn't do regular journaling in my life. Many of us, our journal is, in a sense, our calendar. You know, we look at that, we can look back on our life, what we were doing when. So, in a way, everyone journals who keeps track of in their online calendar for a number of years. But I think it's a, really a tremendous discipline. Even a few lines, a paragraph or two can be tremendous looking back. If I could only look back when I was in my 20s, 30s, what I was doing and thinking, I think it grows in value over time. Yeah, I often think, am I going to be 75 or something and listening to all my old podcast episodes on double speed and being like, this is where I talk about my life kind of with other people who are now all old or not here anymore or whatever. Yeah, who knows? It's a whole new ball game with the technology we have now. That could be fascinating for you. Yeah, in 20 years, it's a form of memoir in a way. Yeah, I often think like, what if I just left my equipment on for five minutes a day in the morning? Writing definitely has something to do with it. The long hand, the brain, et cetera, et cetera. There's all those connections. But I'm wondering, look, if I don't do that, what if I just talked for five minutes a day about what my day was like every day and just let that sit somewhere and Dropbox, you know, not necessarily public, and it could turn into something over time. And and I think there's a lot to be said for that practice of having memories to look back on, not only to look back and say, I did this, or look at how interesting this was back then, or look at what I've accomplished, but to see kind of the bigger picture in our lives has value in and of itself, because I think there's this whole mindfulness thing of be in the moment, be in the now, and I think that's a great thing, but I think sometimes when your now is really tough and you're stressed out and life has really kind of dragged you down, it can help to look back and go, oh, I've been here before and I've made it through just fine. I would so agree with that. Even though memories may be slightly distorted, it may not reflect exactly what happened, it's from our perspective, We remember through a filter just as we perceive life through a filter day to day, moment to moment. 
but still we have that ability to remember. Whereas we're not sure that many species remember in the same way. And we also have this ability to project our imagination into the future. So it's not as if there's something bad about looking back, thinking about what we call the past or looking ahead to what we call the future. We have these capacities and there have been people who lost that capacity through a brain injury and they do live moment to moment because they have no choice. And it's a strange life in a way. So all this information, these ideas of living in the present are really saying it may be more effective and functional to handle what's in front of us and not worry as much about the past or the future. But still, that isn't to say it isn't valuable to look back. When people talk about writing books, it doesn't mean you have to sit down in longhand or sit down in front of a keyboard. I think it's perfectly viable to just talk into a recorder. And some people, that's how they flow. And they can always, if they want, have a transcribed text later. My parents, as they were getting older, before they lost the capacity to really articulate some of their memories, I hired a lady who did a business to go and inquire and ask questions of older people for their families. So I was able to get a lot of information about their youth, what life was like for them when they were young. And I've got these on old cassette tapes. I really treasure them, what they remember, where their parents came from and what it was like as children. So I do encourage people, if I had a literary mission, it would be to encourage everyone in some form or the other to write memoir, to write down their thoughts, their feelings, their experiences. Because the way I see it is that each of our lives is a story unlike any other on the planet. Your life, nobody has a story exactly like yours or mine. And in a way, our lives are like a novel being written. We never know what the next chapter is going to be. And we're characters in that novel. And I like to look at my life that way. I think that's a healthy perspective in a lot of ways, because otherwise you can get bogged down in the day to day. And again, mindfulness, very positive movement, very positive skill set or status or whatever you want to call it. But I think there is something to be said for zooming out. And the only way to do that is to have some sort of record of what happened that's not just purely memory because your memory is only gonna focus on what it wants to focus on, which a lot of times is the bad thing that happened a month ago, or the good thing that happened a year ago, instead of having a more balanced, realistic look at things, which might help you find more perspective and more purpose. Speaking of purpose, your new book, The Four Purposes of Life, is something that initially I thought, oh, okay, everybody's kind of writing about purpose and what am I here to do and what's the meaning of life or whatever, not a new question, but why did you decide to write this book? Couple reasons. If everybody's writing about purpose, it's because it's an important topic in life. You know, in the Peaceful Warrior movie, you know, based on my first book, there's a scene in which the character, Dan's character, hikes with his old mentor, Socrates, played by Nick Nolte in the movie. And they hike to the top of this mountain. And Dan comes to the realization that it's the journey that makes us happy, you know, not the destination. That's a nice little insight that he had. But we have to also consider that without a destination in mind, there is no journey. We just wander around. So to our point A, where we are now, Everyone needs a point B. I believe we're hardwired purpose seekers, goal seekers. It gives us motion in life. In fact, one could define a good life or a successful life as one that is moving toward a meaningful or worthwhile purpose for them. Not getting anywhere, but moving toward a purpose. Most of us, if we look back on our lives, those times in our lives when we've had a goal, whether it's been in a sport, 
or academics or learning a musical instrument, when we've had a purpose, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, our lives become more meaningful, which I think we are interested in even more than what we call happiness. Happiness, you know, is not just walking around with a gleeful smile on our face. It's having a sense of that our lives count for something and to be immersed in the moment. And I think that requires that sense of purpose. So the reason I wrote the four purposes of life, you know, why not six? Why not three? And why not one? A friend of mine, as I wrote in the introduction, you know, he said, I know the purpose of life. It's learning to love. Whatever the question, love is the answer. Well, you know, in a bigger picture, I I couldn't argue with that. You know, that sounds like a good purpose. Uh, Somebody else said, well, wait a minute. Isn't the human purpose awakening of some kind? Yeah, that sounds great to me too. And other people come up with other ideas, which is great. But just as we divide the points on a compass into four primary directions or the days of the year into four seasons, by looking at our lives through the lens of the four purposes I describe in the book, it really gives us a handle, a structure on our lives that I think is relevant and makes sense in terms of what we're doing here and what we're here to do. I think the book is well done, of course. I mean, it's not your first rodeo, so you don't need my accolades to to feel good about it, but I'll tell you, I did enjoy it. And I think in the beginning, maybe you wrote this, or maybe I'm making this up, but it says this book is written with special consideration for those at a crossroads. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think a lot of the email that we get from AOC family that's like, I wanna quit my job, or I'm thinking about having a kid, or I've just graduated from school, or some other thing, you know, ending a relationship or beginning one, I think that some of the same questions often crop up, and some of the answers are largely dependent, of course, upon one's path and life experience. And I notice the book is divided into, obviously, these four purposes. Why don't we dig into that a little bit? Because they weren't something I could predict, right? I gotta give you that. I didn't see most of these coming, even though they make sense when you read them. Yes, someone else might write a four purposes or six, and they might be quite different. But, you know, I wrote another book, which is relevant. It was a major publication and all that. And it featured what I call 12 gateways to personal growth. In other words, 12 areas that I would define to comprise the entire area of what we call personal development or personal growth, a foundation for our lives. And why 12? I don't know. It just came out that way, even though 12 is a significant number, I suppose, astrologically, and 12 jurors and the 12 gates of Jerusalem and and 12 disciples of Christ. I mean, there are a lot of 12s around, but I didn't try to fit it into that. It just came out, 12. We'll have a chance to talk about that actually in the first purpose of life, which is learning life's lessons. That sounds so mundane. Oh, like back in school, you know, we have to learn something. But it really is much more radical than just saying, yes, we learn from our life experience. It's saying, I'm proposing that Earth is a perfect school for souls, if you will, and that daily life is our classroom. Every day we learn lessons. I'm also saying that no one needs to read my book or any books I've written or any books anyone has written or ever attend a seminar in order to continue to evolve and learn and grow as a human being. People were growing and evolving before there were books and seminars. You might well ask, well, then, Dan, why do you write books? And why do you teach seminars if people are going to evolve anyway? And because a good reminder, whether it's written or auditory, a good reminder may give us a lens to help us see life more clearly and learn the lessons of everyday life with a little more grace, a little less pain, and maybe save us some time on the journey, unnecessary sidetracks. So that's why I write and speak. 
And I'm also saying it's impossible for anyone to fail at anything as long as they've learned a lesson from it. And what I mean is that the lesson is not just the icing on the cake, it's the cake itself. It's all about learning. By learning, I don't mean like we did back in school. Those are practical skills, adding, subtracting, some math, some English that help us in the rest of our social daily life. But I'm talking about more existential lessons. And someone could also ask, well, fine, if we're here to learn, then what courses do we need to pass in order to graduate? And I actually list 12 courses, which are the same as those 12 gateways I mentioned in that other book. These are courses in the school of life. I've had a recurring dream. I believe you may have had a dream like this or very similar to it, and many of your listeners have had this dream or a very similar one. Here's how it goes. I'm in the dream, and I realize I have a final exam I've got to get to. It's a big exam, but then I realize that I signed up for the course, but I forgot I'd signed up, and I never went to any classes. Oh, my gosh. And the irony of this dream, the reason I'm mentioning it, and this may be recognizable among some of your listeners, and many people have had it but don't remember the dream. I still have it, and I, I haven't been in school for a decade and a half. Yeah, no, it can happen decades after school. But the irony is that this describes our lives. Every day we're tested by something in a relationship or money or a decision we have to make. But we don't know what courses we signed up for. And so I summarize them in the four purposes of life. Again, the four purposes of life, for those interested in my books, really puts together the pieces of the puzzle. Those who've read a number of my different books, gee, how does it fit? Dan wrote a book that seemed like on numerology or life purpose and another book on this topic, on the spiritual laws or universal laws. How do they fit together? Well, this book puts it together. And these 12 courses were here we're working on. They're required courses. Nobody can skip any. This is the education that's the foundation of our lives. It's not just about having a good relationship. That's great. It's not just about being successful in business, making money, or being an artist or whatever. These lessons are what we learn through all those challenges of everyday life, whatever path we choose. So far, I'm loving it. I need to take a quick break, but when we get back, I wanna hear about these 12 courses and give us a brief explanation of each one. This is Art of Charm. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. 
You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, we are back with Dan Millman. Dan, I would love to hear just kind of a brief overview of each of these 12 courses so that people know what the heck we're talking about. How's that? Sounds great. Just to summarize them very briefly, the first course we're involved in is discovering our worth. It's different from self-esteem, it's not entitlement, it's just recognizing our human worth so we begin to avoid self-sabotage, which plagues some of us at different times in our lives. Because we start to open up to life and life's blessings. Ramakrishna said, an ocean of abundance can rain down from the heavens, but if you're only holding up a thimble or, or a shot glass, that's all you're going to get. So it's a reminder to start opening our arms and saying, yes, thank you. So that's the first. The second course is reclaiming our will. And what that involves is turning what we know into what we actually do. You know, many of us spend half our day analyzing our craziness and the other half dramatizing it. Yes. So this helps us actually when we know something such as it's good to do regular moderate exercise almost every day, or it's good to get enough rest, or it's good to eat a balanced diet. It, it helps us and shows us how to turn what we know into what we actually do. Isn't that one of the greatest challenges, it would seem to me, of, of life? Of course, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people listening right now going, man, this stuff is life-changing. I don't really have time to apply it, but this weekend, it's gonna happen. <laughs> right, exactly. So there are keys to that. The third purpose is energizing our body because energy enhances every human capacity. 
It's not about looking like an athlete or being fit necessarily, but it's having a flow of energy in our life and using that energy and channeling it well. The fourth of these courses we're all learning is managing our money. You know, even in a so-called spiritual or big picture book, you can't ignore the issue of money and commerce and producing an income and so on. But we can touch upon that when we get to the second purpose in the book. All right, so still within the first purpose, learning life's lessons, the fifth area is taming our mind. And I have a slightly different take on that than just telling people to go meditate. The sixth purpose is trusting our intuition, which we also need to value logic, of course, and reason. But trusting our intuition helps rebalance us because most of us are leaning to the left. We're so much into our left brain. We need to also use our entire brain. So trusting our intuition is a call to paying more attention to those feelings, not as emotions, but intuitions in a sense. Wisdom that may not have a clear reason for it, but you know, many of us have made a decision because it seemed logical and reasonable, but we wake up in the night with a funny feeling about it. So that's what I'm talking about. We're finding more and more, the more we read and talk about brain science here on the show, we're finding out more and more that intuition is essentially almost like logical thought, only it's done thousands of times over in a different part of the brain. So where you might say, well, I need to shut the door to make sure that the air conditioning doesn't get out of the house, that's a very conscious, logical thought, whereas intuition is kind of like maybe a 100 or even thousands of those little bits of pieces of knowledge and logical thought and experience and things like that being calculated in a totally different part of the brain, almost subconsciously, and that's why it tends to be very, very accurate a lot of the time, because it's not just coming from the ether, it's not coming out of the sky, it's coming out of your brain, it's just that it's being done more efficiently than we're used to with logical thought and much more, quote unquote, effortlessly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's nothing mystical about intuition. And there's nothing uncanny or infallible either. Someone can make an intuitive choice and it may not necessarily lead to an easy path, but that doesn't mean it was wrong. It may be that somehow on some level we know we need these challenges. So yeah, intuition is real and solid in its way. And you said almost subconscious. I believe that it is what we would call subconscious. It's information, things we know we don't know we know. For example, someone can see an auto accident and get more information in that moment than their conscious mind retains. But under hypnosis occasionally or hyperconcentration, they can get a partial license plate where they weren't consciously aware they saw it. So it does come out of that more subconscious space by definition, our conscious mind isn't yet aware of it. So it actually is a, a method in the second purpose of life, again, in the four purposes of life. In the second purpose, I take people through something called time travel, where it's drawing forth our intuition and imagination and making more educated decisions. But we can get to that after. So getting to the last, very quickly, the last of the six courses we're taking in the School of Life one is accepting our emotions. Emotions are very important, but we need to know what they are and how to handle them much better than most people do. So that's the, the seventh. Of the, and then comes facing our fears. Fear is a wonderful servant, but can be a terrible master. So it's how we face our fears and what that's all about. And the ninth area is illuminating our shadow. And yeah, that's like Jungian shadow work. It's really parts of ourselves we've disowned. But simply put, it's about seeing ourselves realistically and getting past self-image and concerns for that. And it frees up a lot of energy too and, and psychic space. And the 10th 
course we're working with is to embrace our sexuality. And this isn't what many people may imagine it to be. It's really about accepting and embracing ourselves, accepting who we are. But we cannot sweep sexuality under the rug. It is one of these 12 arenas everyone's working on. Even if we feel, oh yeah, I have a good sexual life, you know, great, fine. But still, it's something we need to explore for a full grasp of our human development. And then the 11th gateway, second to last one, or the 11th course, is awakening our heart. And I also have quite a different take on that. It has very little to do with sentiment or trying to feel love all the time or compassion all the time. And the final of these courses we're working on, all within the first purpose in this little book, but it summarizes these, the 12th brings it all full circle is serving our world, finding a way to connect with other people through service. Even people who are independently wealthy, I know a lady who has millions of dollars, but she works in a small bookstore because she loves books and likes to connect with people and recommend reading. So that's not a bad segue into the second purpose of life as listed in this particular book. Let's do it. Yeah, because I looked at, of course, the first few life's courses. And when you look at these in the book, you think, okay, that, yeah, I've heard about that. I've thought about this. Rarely do we kind of put a lot of conscious thought into any of this. And a lot of people, as we know, we all know people in our lives that have to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. And it might behoove them and us to pay attention to what those are. I love the second purpose the most out of everything that I had read, because it seems maybe I'm just in that phase right now, but I think it's one of the most overlooked Sure. And there are two major points of emphasis. The second purpose in the four purposes of life is finding our career and calling. Many people, as you know, when they think of purpose, they go, what am I here to do? They're thinking of their career. How do I spend many hours during my day so I can make it the most suitable and pleasant and meaningful and give the most? And the second purpose, the reason it's important to understand the difference between career and calling is many of us get idealistic advice, such as do what you love and the money will follow, unless it doesn't. Sometimes people do what they love and the money doesn't follow. It's not a magical formulation. Our career, by definition, is what we do to produce an income. What could be more natural? That is, human beings, since human beings were interacting on earth, were trading, bartering their different talents, and having commerce with one another. And over time, we had money as an intermediary. But we need to produce an income to support ourselves and a family, if we're involved with family. So we may love our work. We may get a lot of perks from it, finding it meaningful and so on. But if we weren't getting paid anything to do it, we'd probably have to find something else. So that's what a career is about. Whether we call it a job, a profession, a gig, whatever, it's what we do for a living. Whereas our calling, that by definition is what we love. We may not even know why we love it. Maybe it's a hobby, a sport, a game, a craft, playing cards. It's something we do not necessarily focused on income. It's just something we love to do. That's very, very important too. And the reason it's important to understand is because many starving artists out there feel like they don't want to sell out. They need to practice their guitar all day, for example. Whereas if they got a day job, they might achieve some independence, move out of their parents' basement, 
and that may stabilize their life and allow them in their discretionary time to pursue their calling rather than insist it be full time. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who I know who value only what produces an income and they feel like they're wasting their time spending time on things that don't produce an income. So they may have abandoned a calling or a hobby or something that gave them joy because they can't justify it. So it's important to appreciate both career and calling. But newsflash, we don't have to love our job. It's good if we like it. It's good if we find it suitable for us. If not, we need to look for something else. But what we do love is our calling. Now, some people combine their career and calling. I think probably in your case, that's true. I know it is in my case, but that's not necessarily superior. It's fine to have a a job, a functional job you do that you're good at, that produces an income, and then a calling you know, in your discretionary time. So one isn't better than the other. If they happen to combine, that's terrific too. Should we seek to combine those two? Because it seems like that's kind of the trendy thing. Like you work, you know, a regular job, but only until you have to, and then go jump into your calling. And I can see it both ways, right? But I definitely understand why somebody who's spending time doing a day job that they don't really love is going, "Ah, how can I turn my calling into my job? I get that. Well, yes, some people get good enough at their calling, whether it's playing a musical instrument or something else, they get good at it enough to to produce an income and then it becomes their work. Now, some people have asked me, how do I know if my career is also my calling? Easy to answer. The litmus test is this. If you won the lottery, would you keep doing it at least part time? And if you, the answer is yes, it's also a calling. If you would stop it immediately, then it's a job. And many people suffer needlessly by thinking, well, I like my job okay. I like some things about it, but there's things I don't like about it. I want to find work that I love. And that may not be realistic. There's nothing wrong with having a job where you like some aspects of it and don't like others. I don't like every aspect of my work. You know, I'm flying to Beijing, China next week, and I'm not crazy about 14-hour plane flights and jet lag where I work the night shift, reverse hours, but it's part of what I do. So I accept that part and doing what I love is presenting to people. So I don't want people to suffer unnecessarily thinking their career has to be a calling. But many people wait. They say, when I retire, then I'll start doing what I'm really called to do. Well, that may work for some people, but why not do a little bit of it now? So anyway, this is part of that whole discussion about career and calling. The one big emphasis I place in that particular section of the book is knowing ourselves. You know, it's true in every spiritual tradition or wisdom tradition, know thyself. Because if we don't really know ourselves realistically, and it takes time to do that, and it doesn't usually happen in our early 20s or teens, usually we have to test ourselves against the world. But if we don't really know ourselves well, we end up making the right choice for the wrong person, the one we thought we were. You know, a lot of people get married, then they get divorced later because they say, I've changed. They didn't necessarily change that much. It may be they just didn't know themselves enough. And when they finally came around to, wow, this is my values. These are my talents. These are my interests and priorities. And they realize it doesn't fit anymore. And that can happen in the work realm as well. Joseph Campbell said many people climb to the top of their professional ladder only to discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. 
Yes, and I can identify with this one really well. I mean, I went to law school, you know, studied hard in undergrad, went to a top law school, got a great top market job on Wall Street, and then went, you know, I only did this because I didn't have anything else to do. And I don't necessarily regret the path because I think going along that path helped out. I, I would imagine everybody has similar things to say about if I did it all over again, but I will tell you, there was just no good reason for me to have gone down that road knowing so early, I knew so early that that wasn't right for me and yet I ignored it because of peer pressure slash this is the way it's supposed to happen slash this is what happens when you grow up and all these other things I told myself that turned out not to be true. And you could look back and say, in my view, it makes you a really good at what you do now. The analytical capacity, the, the discernment you developed, through that, all the studies you did. So everything serves in its way. And it just led you to where you are. I know someone who was an attorney and ended up being a chiropractor and brilliant. He's chiropractor for the Golden State Warrior basketball team and the San Francisco Ballet. Wow. And he's really gifted, but he was a lawyer first. So, you know, Francis Bacon said, we rise to great heights by a winding staircase. It's very true. I, I mean, there's one thing that will kick your butt straight towards your calling and it's becoming an attorney beforehand because if being an attorney is not your calling, it will spit you out so hard and so fast that you'll shoot towards just about anything else. And usually by that time, people have gone, I've gone down the wrong road enough, I'm gonna listen to my gut on this one and go with something else. I think uh, every time I go and speak at any kind of entrepreneur conference or anything like that, there's always a small handful or even more of former attorneys who now do X, Y, Z, whatever sort of other business that might be, in the list of speakers and even more in the audience. And I think it's not just attorneys, but we just have a way of rejecting the profession after a while. When we get back, I wanna talk a little bit more about calling versus career. And also I wanna learn how you distilled these four purposes and why these are important. This is The Art of Charm. All right, we're back with Dan Millman. Now, I cut you off a little bit there on the career versus calling, and what I was asking was, should we seek to make our calling our career in all cases? And it sounds like that's not necessarily the right thing for everyone. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. As I said, a calling can become a career if we get skilled enough and lucky enough, in a sense, learn to promote it. You know, to be successful in a career, you have to be good at two things, good at what you do, and you have to be good at promoting what you do. But many people don't really like doing that. And I think they have to have a shift in perspective that you're not promoting for yourself. You're promoting for other people. In other words, if you have a good service or product, you can't help anybody who doesn't know you exist. So it's our obligation. Just let people know what we do and be proud of it and put it out there or have someone else who's really good at doing that. And so that's part of it. But you were mentioning, you know, in terms of being a lawyer, there are a lot of recovering MBAs out there too, who are then looking for something that feels more meaningful to them. What I don't encourage is people having a never ending quest, whether it's like some people look for their soulmate, oh, I'm with this person, but they're maybe not perfect for me. Maybe there's somebody else better out there. And people do that with jobs too. So again, that's why I say you don't have to be completely in love with your job. It's nice if you happen to have that. But as long as you like it and find it suitable and it's functional. I mean, I talked with one guy once. I said, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I import dog food from Japan. <laughs> now, I asked him, 
you know, when you were growing up, did you like have this aspiration? He said, no, of course not. Most of us stumble onto our work. This circumstance or that, someone we meet, something we read, and we end up doing what we do. So it's pretty hard to figure it all out ahead of time. One story I tell in the book, Kenny, I call him in the book, and this is a true story, but I change his name. Actually, his name I can give it is Ron Kaufman. And I met Ron many years ago. He was getting some static from his parents because they said, look, you're 35 years old. Don't you think it's time you moved out of the house? <laughs> yes. Because all Ron liked to do was throw Frisbees. He loved Frisbees, playing ultimate Frisbee and tossing it. There was something about it that just grabbed him. You could call it his calling. He thought about this, you know, maybe I ought to really kind of get into something. And not long after that, in the shower, he got this brainstorm and he quickly toweled off. He told me this and he got dressed and he called the Wemo Corporation who makes Frisbees and he said, hi. And he finally got to their marketing person and he said, I would like you to do this. I'd like you to give me 500 free Frisbees and I'd like you to print on each one the words world peace in English and in Russian, in the Cyrillic alphabet. And then I'd like you to pay my way to Russia, put me up there. Now, this was during the Cold War. This was a while ago. And he said, I'd like you to send me to Red Square, and I'm going to become a Frisbee goodwill ambassador to make a bond between our countries by showing people how to play Frisbee. And, you know, they said, this wouldn't be that expensive. This is a good idea. So they said, yes. He ended up going to Russia numerous times, teaching people Frisbee. He ended up learning Russian, married a Russian wife, leading goodwill tours. He couldn't find his work in life, so he made it up. Now, wouldn't that be great if we could all do that? It's an admirable story in any case and, and based on a true story. I'm imagining the executive saying, and if he gets arrested because they think he's a spy, we're going to get a ton of free PR out of it anyway. So this is win-win. We can't lose on this one. <laughs> that could be. Print the Frisbees. <laughs> yeah. And I have other stories, including mine, I won't go into now, but mine was a winding path. I don't know if you read that part, but I tried so many things before. Suddenly, I one day I settled into what I do, which is you know writing and speaking, but I tried many different things. How did you distill these four principles out of, did you have a bunch of different ideas and then you settled on, okay, these are the four main ones, or was it always kind of clear, all right, this is what I'm going to build the book around? Jordan, I have this gift or eccentricity where sometimes when I ask the right questions, the answers come. And I don't know how they do or why they do, but people seem to like them. I'm not saying, you know, no matter what in the history of the world, these are the four purposes, but they're four important ones I know and they cover the basis. These 12 courses we went over already, which again, a larger book, I'd call them 12 Gateways. I simply asked myself the question, what do we mean by personal development or personal growth, spiritual growth? What do we mean by this? And these areas just started popping up. I created a workout that I've been doing for 30 years, just asking from all my experience in dance, martial art, gymnastics, calisthenics, yoga, and all these areas, what would be a workout that could be done in four minutes a day? And these exercises just boom, boom, boom. I wrote them down. That was it. So in the same way, I know I didn't have a hundred purposes and start crossing them out. I just said, well, what are the most important purposes? Now, the third one, which we'll probably be getting into soon, that one I'd already written a book about called The Life You Were Born to Live, which is the most mysterious and provocative purpose, controversial actually. So that was obvious. 
And learning life's lessons had to be one. And of course, how could I ignore career and calling? And then the fourth one came, which we'll get to probably, and that seemed like the most important purpose of all. That's why I saved it for the end because it ties them all together. So they just came up. That's what ended up the four purposes. But I have to acknowledge other people may have purposes that are important to them in their own life. If people are interested in the purposes three and four as well, they can grab this on Amazon. They can go to bookstores. If they know where one of those still is that's open, uh, they can go and check for it there. (laughs) I saw something interesting in the book that I kind of wanted to reach back around on. And you wrote, we learn to ride the shifting tides of emotion like skillful surfers as we grasp the great truth that we don't need to feel compassionate, peaceful, confident, courageous, happy, or kind. We only need to behave that way. I like that, but it's also very counterintuitive because it goes against a lot of, in fact, a lot of what we hear in The Art of Charm and a lot of what we hear everywhere in the sort of self-help or personal growth or even just the regular, normal, Joe average world, which is social programming that, hey, look, we need to either hide or fix our feelings or quiet the mind or be authentic, et cetera, et cetera. And this kind of says the opposite. It just says, no, you just need to sort of try or pretend to be. You've picked up on the most controversial thing I probably teach because most of us have been programmed in some sense in the opposite area. We grew up in a psychological culture, uh, so-called spiritual development, self-help, where it's all about fixing our insides. That if we just have the right thoughts, positive thinking, quiet mind, we're mindful and so on. And if we have the right feelings of confidence and courage and compassion and love and happiness and peace, just feel that way, then our lives will be on track. But I had a chance in my own life and evolution to examine that very closely and to look at what we have more or less control over by our will. We can't just will ourselves to have just positive thoughts because thoughts, images, ideas pop into our awareness all during the day. And sometimes they're more what we call positive and sometimes they're negative. It still is true for me. I've been around the block done a lot of meditation and other disciplines and it's perfectly natural for me to sometimes have positive thoughts or feelings and other times what we'd call more negative. I don't worry about it anymore. I don't try to struggle or fix it. I basically accept whatever thoughts or feelings I'm having as natural to me in that moment. But then I turn my attention to what do I need to do right now? Because our lives are largely shaped by what we do. If we look back on our lives and anything we've accomplished or grown or understand, it's because of something we've done. It's so counterintuitive because most of us believe that we have to work on our minds and work on our emotions. But feelings are like the weather, emotional weather patterns that pass through us. They change all the time. If we could, by our will, control whatever we were feeling, my teaching would be very short. I'd just say, feel happy the rest of your life. Thanks for coming. That'll be (laughs) $5,000. So feelings change, thoughts come and go. We don't have spam filters. So that's why, and I hope your listeners really heard that, what you read, that we don't have to feel this or that. We don't have to feel compassionate because it's going to come and go. How many of us have gotten a gift and we really didn't feel grateful? You know, we can't control that. We don't have to control the mind just to have, and there are many courses on mind control and so on, and techniques to try to influence our thoughts and feelings, but it's a shortcut and it's more direct and realistic to behave with compassion, to behave with courage, to behave with kindness and love, no matter what we happen to be feeling. Now, 
when someone says, wait, isn't that hypocrisy? Yeah, what about authenticity, in air quotes? Yeah, what about authenticity? Well, let me ask you this. What would you call it if you saw somebody you knew who you knew was very afraid and timid and shy, who behaved with courage anyway? Would you call that unauthentic? No, it'd be bravery or, like you said, courage. That's great. That's a positive trait when people do that. And it's no different from someone who feels angry and behaves with kindness. That's no different from somebody who wants to say something mean and instead says a compassionate word. No different. And that is what takes a warrior spirit, because that's what I teach, peaceful warrior's way, peaceful heart, warrior spirit. It's not easy to do, but to me, that's a real form of daily life liberation, not just waiting for some cosmic spiritual thing to happen, but when we're liberated, we feel whatever we accept our emotions. We don't repress them and deny them, but they're there, they provide information, but at the same time, we start to choose how we're gonna behave, what we're gonna bring to the game, And that is why I said that controversial statement. I'm not asking you to feel this or that way, but behave that way. And every time we do, it's a moment of transcendence. Dan, this has been excellent. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or anything that we've seemed to have overlooked that you wanna be sure that you touch on? No, that's fine. I think you do a great job. I just have a really good interaction with you and I, I enjoy it tremendously. Likewise, man, thank you so much. It's really interesting because everybody knows when I do these, I don't like anything that seems overly woo, I'm just not into it. But you do a good job of explaining when things need to be that way and why and what it means and also debunking a lot of that, which is why I really enjoy your work. So thanks so much for joining us today. No, I like working with you, there's no doubt about that. My pleasure. A lot of good stuff here. I think there's a lot of confusion, especially among younger people like millennials about, oh, I need to be doing my calling full time and I can't have a job in my calling and I gotta quit my job and I don't wanna sell out and these two things should be merged as one. And of course, also the authenticity buzz, that kind of thing, the mindfulness buzz. So I'm glad that we got a chance to address some of those things. And frankly, you know me, I'm not one for woo woo. I'm not much of a spiritual guy, quote unquote, either. But I like the practical element of all this, and I think the AOC family will as well. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as other resources mentioned on the show, and of course, the book, The Four Purposes of Life. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. We're gonna link to the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm, and I engage freely with everybody there and post a lot of articles and insights as well. You can find our amazing sponsors in the show notes or go to theartofcharm.com slash advertisers, and don't forget about the Art of Charm Challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. We're gonna teach you networking, connection skills, inspire people around you to develop personal and professional relationships with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that covers topics like body language, persuasion, networking, public speaking, negotiation, nonverbal communication, the whole shebang, and I'm doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. This will make you a better networker, it'll make you a better connector. Check it out at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced, as always, by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, please, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them.
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.